Thank you for joining us in our study of the book of Genesis, entitled The Origin of Reason. Now as we read along to verse 20, 21, we encounter a couple of verses here that seem totally out of place. After the judgment of God has been handed down and the serpent is cursed, the woman is told that she'll have pain in childbearing and birth and her desires are to be altered. And the man is now to work by the sweat of his brow and will now be charged with working for his food if he is to eat. He is also going to sweat and work and have an aching back. The ground is cursed. However, not man, nor the woman. The serpent was cursed, and the ground is cursed as a result of Adam's rebellion. You and I know this very well. Thorns and thistles it produces. Now, while death had come spiritually, and a total separation from God had been made, and a loving relationship severed, God came to them as judge. He is, was, and always will be holy in all of his ways. He has not and will not ever countenance sin. His eyes are too pure to even look upon sin, according to Habakkuk 1.13. The evil man will not go unpunished. Adam and Eve, though beloved by God and created by God, were not going to escape this either. Now, we've, also, we've already seen the examples of sin expressed. Shame, nakedness. Uh, was realized fear, running from God, the relationships turning sour, Adam turns on Eve, blame, deception. Prior to this, there was no reason for fear or retribution, and there was no sense of nakedness. There was no shame. There was no fear of God, meaning that there was no reason to run and hide. And if a man does good and he obeys the law and exhibits a pure heart and good behavior towards God, he, he'll have no reason to fear. And those in authority will actually praise such a man today. But evil was done. Now there is a lingering doubt in the heart and the mind of man. Will God accept me? And the answer is no. Not in and of yourself. You've broken the law. But wait, why? What if he has done the wrong? What if the man is absolutely innocent? But he's not. All have sinned and they've come short of what God requires. They come short of the glory of God. Now, I understand sinful nature is a sinful thing, and that it's this nature, the way I understand it, was passed down from Adam. I understand that there's a lot of people who want to ask why, why they're being held responsible for the sin of another. And there is room for a long discussion on this, but let's assume that that is not the case. Let's say that you're free from the sin of Adam, okay? How do you stand now? How do you stand in relationship to God? Are you sinless? Are you free from all condemnation? No. And this being the case, it means that you've earned God, God's condemnation by your own effort and through your own merit. And Paul was right. All have sinned and therefore come short of the glory of God. Now you want to argue about Adam and injustice and being tagged with this sin? Okay. You stand and you declare your own purity. Show us your merit. Show us how you deserve heaven and how you deserve to walk hand in hand with the Holy God. My position is planted solidly on the foundations of Scripture and what I read there. And what I read is that one who commits sin is of the devil. The Lord accuses the Pharisees and them, the religious people of his day, as being like their father, the devil. 
So you want to deny your relationship to Adam? Okay. But regardless of your understanding of this, today you sinned. You've lied. You've done something wrong. You've had bad thoughts. You've gotten angry. Uh, you've cursed God. You've cursed your parents, your friend, your wife. You've even kicked the dog. And you're no different than any other man on the face of the earth. So what are you going to do now? What are you going to do about your sin? That's a big question. We're going to consider that. Now let's look at Adam and try to understand some more about this. The way he stood before God after his judgment was meted out. He was dead towards God. The relationship he had was over. It wasn't just fractured and needed mending. It was over. Death had separated him from God. When you die, it's not a matter of needing repair. It means your body has ceased to have any life in it. Your relationships are ended. Your loved ones and your enemies, all that's over. Adam, in judgment, spoke cruelly to his wife. He blamed her for his problems. The woman blamed Satan. And Satan stood there with nobody to blame but himself. But something odd happens here. And as I mentioned earlier, in Genesis 3, 20 and 21, it seems totally out of place. Why would Adam give his wife a name in light of all that had just happened? Why would he worry about giving her a name? Now, a lot of people don't realize this, but prior to this, there was no name given to Eve, but the one that God had given. And God had given her the name of man, or Adam. Yeah. Adam gave her the title of Eve. Wow. But the whole nature of life had changed now. Even every, well, we've mentioned this before, the nature, the whole of creation began to groan under the weight of sin. And Adam stops to give his wife a name, a title. What's going on here? What, what's going on? It's a lot more than what people generally realize. Adam did something here that was astounding. And as a result, God responded by making them garments of skin and covering their shame. So there, there seems to be absolutely no connection between the courtroom scene and Adam naming his wife. It's like Moses was throwing us a tidbit of information, chasing a rabbit maybe, or like saying, oh, here's something you need to know. But no, this is not, a case, this is not the case at all. God is the God of order. And he's not a God of confusion. And in organizing information, which he's provided for us, things are presented clearly and in order. His thoughts are concise and the flow of information is remarkable. 66 books from the hands of 35 men wrote 785,137 words over 1,500 years. And all of the material dovetails perfectly and it points us to one thing through the cross of Jesus Christ, through the gospel, the redemptive message. You see, the story has many contributors, but one author and one mind that is above us all. So there's no confusion here. These verses don't just pop in out of the blue. We cannot simply say that this is just a bit of unrelated information here. We need to take a look at the text. We need to understand that God has placed these two verses exactly where he wants them to be. And he's wanting to reveal a benchmark fact to us. We need to see what it is. Eve was Adam's name or title for his wife. And prior to this, she was referred to as a female, a suitable helper, a woman, and a wife. And these are all descriptive terms, which are generic. 
And if we're discussing a teacher, let's say, at a local high school with a friend, and we call her, you know, uh, that lady that teaches over there at the high school. Well, what lady? There's only 23 female teachers at that school. Well, you know, the, the woman, that old and cranky woman, you know, she has red hair. Oh, you're talking about Miss Fairchild. Yeah, that's her name. Now you can look back with memories because it's specific. Without a name, somewhat of a generic description is given. And when we say a name, now there's a graphic description. You can form a picture in your mind. Oh, Miss Fairchild, is she still teaching? You know she was my high school teacher? I know her, yeah. God did name Adam's wife, as we mentioned earlier. God, in Genesis 5, 1 and 2, called her Adam. And it was the name he had given to her husband as well. It's a family name, you see. There are several applications that we can consider, but the one I want to point out now, I was brought up in the Deep South, <coughs> excuse me, and my parents were from Mississippi, and my mother in particular had a religious history that ran deep in her family. The South overall has a religious flavor to it, but it has long since faded, and it's not totally gone. Part of the Southern culture found in Mississippi and Alabama when a man married a woman, it was revealed that she was to assume the family name. Jane Jones married John Doe, and the two became Mr. and Mrs. John Doe, not Mr. John Doe and his wife, Jane Jones Doe. The two became one, not two and a half. There's a leaving and a cleaving that occurs in marriage that is complete, not partial. In becoming one, the man stands responsible before God for his wife and his progeny. It's not a shared responsibility in this regard. He gave Adam a help me. He called her, the female, Adam, which was the name of her husband. Now, this is seen today as chauvinistic and bigoted. The woman says, I am woman, hear me roar. And she has pursued exactly what God said she would do. Her desire is equality. Her desire is equity, or even in many cases, superiority. On top of this, it's more than a hassle to change your name, you know, no matter how you wish to do things. You have insurance to notify, social security to change, the driver's license, even passports. There's a lot of administrative planning that has to be considered. And rather than go through all the troubles, many opt to keep their family name or hyphenate their name and the husband's family name as well. The arguments for this today refer to gender equity and women's rights. No law requires a name change after marriage, not here in America, it's not required. The name change actually dates back to English common law. Now that was known as what is called the doctrine of coverture. Under this doctrine, women were considered to be one with their husbands and were required to assume the husband's surname as their own. They were equal, it is agreed there were legal issues that were being considered. All children born to that couple were tagged with the surname of the father, and that name could not change until the female child was legally married. It was not until Justice Abe Fortas of the United States Supreme Court overturned this practice that it was eliminated as a requirement. He stated in his opinion that coverture rests upon the old common law fiction that the husband and wife are one, and the one is the husband. Now, it wasn't until the 1970s that the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a Tennessee law requiring a woman to assume the last name of her husband before registering to vote. Around that same time, the prefix Miss M.S. emerged, allowing women to assert their own identity apart from the marital status. 
The National Organization for Women saw this as a repudiation of any thought of a man being superior to a woman, as being expressed in the doctrine of coverture, and consequently, the Word of God. It also encouraged a woman to push for ratification of the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, in, 1970, in 1972, which, seen in the eyes of the law, set forth gender neutrality meaning the law could not make distinctions between men and women. So the law, under the Equal Rights Amendment, would not have the right to say who's a man and who's a woman. It's a gender-neutral issue. So we rejected that in 1972. But yet we practiced that in 2022. Fifty years later, our Supreme Court, even the nominee that is before Congress today cannot distinguish between what a woman is and what a man is. That is why the Equal Right Amendment was struck down in the first place. In the eyes of the law, we've become idiots. And we wonder why politicians cannot discern between who's a boy and who's a girl. They're afraid of the liabilities and the onslaught that will come as a result of making such a decision or declaration. This is another step towards the destruction of the nuclear family. And with all things being equal, who leads then? Who is the responsible party? The sad thing is that men today gladly will hand off the reins to the woman. Leading is not easy, and it does not allow time to relax, you know. It's even harder when there is a constant challenge. The best man I've ever seen was a man, not a woman. The saddest relationship I've ever seen is when the man has surrendered and the woman has taken control. This is not any this is not degrading to the woman. Today we can't even say a chairman. We have to say a chairperson so that we don't offend anybody. We can't say mankind anymore. We have to say humankind or humanity. Why? Well, to speak of mankind is obviously sexist and racist. These are efforts and demands that are fleshy and worldly, and they're not Christian. They run counter to God's revelation, as we see here in Genesis 20 and 21, and also Genesis 5.1. I have a wife, and I do not boast in my position as her husband, but we were, by choice, intentionally presented as Mr. and Mrs. Frank Seagull. My wife's legal name is now Lisa June Goss. It is not Lisa June James Goss. This is not a chauvinistic or bigoted attitude. It's a biblical attitude. This is where I find my footing for this particular issue. This does not mean that Lisa has no identity of her own. It does not mean that her personality is being crushed and that she has to silence her voice. That's not what it means at all. She can dress as she wishes within reason. And the same applies to me. And I assure you, she wouldn't allow me to speak at church in short shorts and a wife beater t-shirt. We have a mutual understanding. She thinks for herself and in many ways is autonomous and independent. But this is a special feature within the marriage that's not found in shacking up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. The two meld into one. Abe Fortas was wrong. This is not a fictional myth. This is something pointed out in Scripture by God. The wife becomes the wife of President Jones, let's say. Their identity is absolutely inseparable. 
the wife is no longer called Mary Jones. That somebody says, who is that woman over there? And you would say, well, that's the wife of the president. Really, what's her name? Uh, Mary Eisenhower. Really? Yes. Who is she? She's the wife of the president. The identity now becomes one. And this is why women, in particular, should be very careful as to who they marry. In marriage, you are assuming the identity of another person in a complete fashion. And to deny this is to walk against what God expresses. You see, in Christ, we gain a new identity. We become a child of God. The old man has died, and the new man is born. And these are the things we gain as we begin to understand the origins of reason. I want to thank you very much for participating in this study, and I'm glad that you've joined us, and I hope that you continue as we continue through the study of Genesis to understand the origin of reason. Thank you very much.